0: This is a Cherish podcast and I'm your host Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients is undergoing rapid change. Any creative person needs to have a healthy ego because rejection is inevitable and setbacks are guaranteed. And anyone who starts a small business is taking a big risk. Nearly half of all new businesses fail each year. So how does a designer, after years of education, training, and often working with an established designer, work up the courage to go out on their own? How and when do they know they're ready to launch their own firm? I have with me today three designers who have made that leap successfully, but they also have vivid memories of the early years on their own know how difficult the transition can be and learn many of the pitfalls and even have some advice on how to avoid a few. First up is Washington, D.C.-based designer Zoe Feldman. Zoe studied interior design at Parsons School of Design and trained under AD100 designer Alexa Hampton at Mark Hampton, Inc. Zoe's clean line, modern but comfortable rooms often with bold graphic elements have been featured in Elle Decor, House Beautiful, Domino, Better Homes and Gardens and The Washingtonian among others. Welcome, Zoe.
1: Hey, hi Michael. Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: So glad you're here. Layden Lewis is a trained architect and fine artist who, with his Brooklyn-based firm, Design Studio, creates poetic and culturally sensitive homes, public installations, and furniture inspired by the rich Caribbean heritage of Trinidad and Tobago and classical European modernism. His artwork has been shown at the Studio Museum of Harlem, and his firm's work has landed him on Elle Decor's A-List and garnered coverage in AD, New York Magazine, and House Beautiful. Hello,
2: Layden. Hello there, Michael. Pleasure to be here.
0: So glad you're here. I'm also pleased to have with us Chicago-based designer, Summer Thornton. After years of working with a variety of designers, Summer launched her own firm in 2007 and quickly became known for her fanciful, romantic, and exuberantly colored interiors. Her work has been featured in Architectural Digest, El Decor, House Beautiful, and Traditional Home, and her irreverent and witty take on traditional design has made her a star on Instagram. Her first book, Wonderland, has just been published by Rizzoli. Welcome, Summer.
3: Thank you, Michael. Excited to be here.
0: Okay, before we get started, I just want to thank Emily Devereaux. She's a listener who suggested this topic. And as always, we'd love to have your ideas for future episodes. So I want to get started. So why don't we start with you? What was it? Was there a moment when you first decided that you were ready? I mean, you were working with Alexa Hampton, one of my favorite people in the industry.
1: She's the best. Uh,
0: So what made you say, you know, much as I love Alexa, I think I'm ready to go on my own. Was it a client who approached you or how did it happen?
1: Well, I didn't do that. And I probably would have never done that because I was really happy with Alexa. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, interesting. so what actually happened is I ended up moving from New York and moved back to my home state, which is Florida. And I was quite young and probably pretty arrogant. Like you sort of said, I think you need that to start your own business and very naive. <laughs> Fools rush and, in, right? <laughs> yeah. And I talk about this a lot and I moved back to Florida and I immediately looked, looked around and I'm from the West Coast of Florida and I for it, not even Florida's problem. It was my problem, but I was like, I can't work for anyone here. I've worked for the best. I, I have to start my own thing. I'm obviously as amazing as she is clearly because I worked for her and this is going <laughs> to be easy and I'm going to do this. So that's really how it happened. I was, I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning and I definitely, and I often say like, I wish that I hadn't had, I wish I'd been able to work for her longer. I was with her for about five years. I think I would have benefited and not had not fallen quite as much as I did.
0: Okay. Well, we're going to get into the mistakes okay, in a minute. great. <laughs> now, Summer, what about you? Because you worked for several designers to get your training. How did, how did it happen for you?
3: I did. I worked for a few designers. I also worked for a fabric house, Osborne and Little. Oh, um, I didn't here, know that. Yeah, mm-hmm. here at the Merchandise Mart in Chicago, which was, that was a really fun experience, just seeing the business kind of from another side. And then I actually, I studied business in school and I I studied entrepreneurship. So I kind of apprenticed with a designer my um, during my education. And then I I think you said arrogance, uh, Zoe, and mine was maybe naivety. I just knew that was something I wanted to do. I didn't realize I was too young to do it. So I just went ahead and did it anyways. I started my firm at 25 and <laughs> learned the hard way, I guess, and kind of never never looked back from that moment.
0: Right. And Leighton, it was a little different for you because you were all an artist and a curator and you've worked on installation. So how did it happen that more increasingly in- evolved into design.
2: Thank you. I just want to be clear. I was working for an interior designer as well. I had worked for Joan Bogan, Barbara Halbin Ross, Edward Knowles Architects. So I was a senior person in those firms. But at 27, Zoe called it arrogance and <laughs> I will call it... Um, I don't know. It was just fire. And also, I couldn't work for any of those people anymore. (laughs) So it became this question of like my sanity or my livelihood. And I just, I I picked my livelihood and I thought, there's a certain amount of, uh, I've always appreciated this role of chutzpah. There's a certain amount of chutzpah that it takes to kind of step out and say, I'm qualified, I'm enough, I've learned enough, and I'm going to do it.
0: Right. And I guess for each of you, like Zoe, did you feel that? Working for Alexa, and she is a brilliant designer and a fabulous person. But was there a point where you were thinking, I want to do something a little different? I want something that's more me. Did you feel that you had a certain aesthetic that you, you wanted to get out in the world?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to be clear that while it did have arrogance, also naivete, I did say that. Was <laughs> <not true. laughs> I don't really want to be. That's a really highlight like quote. so arrogant. <laughs> it did. It was a nice combination, of trifecta of that and passion, I think is what Leighton was getting at. So yeah, I grew up in a pretty interesting home that was filled with pop art. My mom was a contemporary art dealer, mid-century modern house. And so when I started working at Markhampton for Alexa, it was my first introduction really to curtains and chintz, <laughs> like literally. And so- oh, so
0: you grew up in a modernist house, so the more traditional was a, was a lesson for you.
1: Yeah, and they are purists. People on the modern side are very much purists. So it mm-hmm. was- It was actually an incredible education for me. And I think that to your point, when I did go off on my own, I did feel that I was so excited to include a lot of what I had learned with Alexa, but also excited to begin to use some of the architecture I was raised in and some of the art that I grew up around to start to infuse that into my designs. And so I think that that's why my designs have kind of like a classic modern look to them. And so I very much think they both inform my design today.
0: And when did you move to Washington, as opposed to the west coast of Florida?
1: In two thousand and seven, mm-hmm. I broke free of Florida. Okay, just kidding, Florida. Uh, I love it. It's great. All right, but <laughs> so why DC? Why did Y-D-C. you choose DC? I don't. Let's see. I'll try to make this pretty unpersonal. I was doing a job in the Hamptons, and I thought of moving back to New York, commuting from Florida, and I, I really wanted to change. I thought I'd go back to New York, which is. I guess kind of the natural pilgrimage, meaning that's where all my work was Mm -hmm. and I'd already been there. And so, but I'm the sort of person I like change and I like to try new experiences. And it felt a bit like I've already done this. So I actually looked at Chicago. I ended up having a very close friend in DC whom I grew up with. He just purchased a place and he's like, and okay, to keep it a little personal, I was going through a divorce, which is not sad. It was the best. But I was like looking for, yeah, major life change. And he's like, well, why don't you just come live with me? And I was like, ugh, I'm like too old and cool to live with anyone. And then I came to visit him and he had this sick townhouse in Georgetown. And he was like, you can live here, pay what you want and work from here. And I was like, wait, what? Yes. So (laughs) that's a good friend. (laughs) That's a great friend. I know. So I did that and I realized I could commute easily to New York and And yeah, and so I did that and started that journey.
0: And are many of your clients in DC at this point? Or do you still all over?
1: They're all over, but the majority are in DC. I have a young family now, so that's nice. But we do still work in New York, Florida, San Francisco, different places. But the vast majority are in this area. Right,
0: right. And Summer, when you launched, did you have clients already that you had met? Previously, how scary was the leap?
3: (laughs) Well, it wasn't very scary because I just kind of... I decided it was time to try it, and I just thought to myself, well, let's see if this works. So it was more like that. Like I said, I was 25. My husband was in advertising, and he had a full-time job, so it didn't feel... I didn't have children yet, so it didn't feel as scary as it might if I did it later on in life. And You weren't I had, betting the whole bank. No, <laughs> I didn't have much bank to bet, so... <laughs> I think my father gave me a loan, actually, for $500 to start a website. So that was... I that hope was, he didn't r-
0: charge a lot of interest.
3: <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. I, I'll have to ask him if I ever gave it back to him. <laughs> But no, we we just kind of my husband and I really started it together. And we I remember calculating out how much we needed to make the first year to make it a viable option for me to leave my full time mm-hmm. job. And I had a few clients and then I actually ended up landing a pretty large client in the first year, and then actually two large clients in the first year. And the second large client I landed is actually still a client today. So they were definitely one of my big breaks and had a just a beautiful apartment in the Palm Olive Building here in Chicago. And it was my first published project.
0: Right. But how did they find out about you, these Bigger clients, I, you know, because you clearly had started out on your own, but I assume you didn't have a big ad or social media budget.
3: I did not. I had zero budget, but my husband, Josh, being in advertising, had a lot of ideas to get around that. So, what we did was we decorated our first condo and he landed me a placement in the Chicago Tribune. And there was a small article on me that that client ended up seeing and hiring me from. I don't think she knew that that was probably one of the the only projects I had done.
0: <laughs> Your <laughs> so. extensive portfolio of one project. <laughs>
3: yes, exactly. So it was a little bit fake it till you make it. And I remember when we actually were assigned the job, she, I think she had, I think in her mind, she was going to hire me to do one room and see how it went. But, mm-hmm. you know, being my only client, I was very attentive and the job went really well. And we ended up doing the entire apartment. And then moving on, we're done several other projects for them uh, since then, and I'm still working with them today, so.
0: Great, great. Now, Leighton, you were clearly chomping at the bit. So how did this happen? How scary was it? Because, first of all, you were a man and a black man <laughs> yeah. going into the design speak, industry. Speak it, speak it. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know? You know, so, Michael, let it out.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. so was So was it, were you more apprehensive for that, or... You know, one of the things about being, I also went to Parsons and being creative. Mm -hmm. So I've had a a couple of different iterations of how this career life of mine actually works. I went to Parsons. I Mm -hmm. started off as an academic. I taught a lot. So I've always been very aware that from the beginning that my projects weren't going to cover all of my personal expenses. So I taught, which I still absolutely adore and love doing. I teach at Parsons, I teach at New York School of Interior Design, and I will continue to do that. So I've always supplemented or thought of teaching as part of my overall game plan. But I had great circumstances. My boss at that time was getting married to a very wealthy man. And all of a sudden I was the senior designer over projects that were happening in Palm Beach, Quag, and New York City simultaneously in which I was heading. And not bad to cut your teeth Mm -hmm. on, you know, a billionaire's homes, right? So all of a sudden I was, ah, here we are. And then after those projects were in, basically, I understood that she'd be winding down and I'd be taking over whatever clients she may have had at that time. I basically kind of adopted one client that started my career. Mm-hmm. And after that, I we had done myself, I started my business with a woman named Catherine Kim. It was called Kim Lewis Designs. And that year, we did a show house up in Harlem. And Harry Henson walked into that showroom and said, we want you to do Kip's Bay. So in 1999, I was the first, you know, I consider myself to be the first black interior designer to participate in Kip's Bay Decorator Showhouse. And I did that at the age of 29 years old.
0: Impressive. Good job. Yeah. So
2: yeah. So I think that it's been a long road, but I don't right. know if this is necessarily the show for it. But um, it, it's <laughs> well, been, we're it's, focused on the early years. Later. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You <laughs> we'll, know. So the, we'll follow so that, up later. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Chapter two point one. Yeah. It was kind of like. I would just show up to places and tell people to hire me. Like, Mm -hmm. and I'd hear about a project. And we had also, what's interesting about those conditions, those circumstances you described about being a black man in New York, in this profession, is that the commercial world doesn't look at it exactly the same way. Right? And so I had a lot of opportunities to do some commercial work that really wasn't about what sometimes private residential work can be. And the landscapes are different.
0: Right, right, right. It's a little less personal yes. in terms of working with the client. So that was a way in for you. That's, Correct. That's really interesting to know. Yes. Yeah. Now, one of the things I'd love to get a sense from each of you, and so it seems like you're the kickoff person for each of these hey. questions. So we'll start with you again. <laughs> what was the biggest mistake you made early on? What was your biggest misconception? Because I know, like we were saying, everybody had their aesthetic they wanted to get out in the world and their approach to design. But design is also a business. Running a firm is a business. So I'd love to get a sense from you. What was the hardest thing? What was the mistake that you made?
1: Okay. I enjoy being the hype person, so thank you.
0: Um, (laughs) All right, I'll switch it up. No,
1: I love it. I love it. Okay, so first of all, I got sued by the first person I ever worked for.
0: Whoa, that was a birth by fire there.
1: Yeah. She didn't have a proper suit, so it was it all worked out. But what I learned from that is that I was like barely marking up, basically nothing. And she, it's sort of a long story, but she was working with someone who was unlicensed and I didn't know this and I hadn't hired the person. So it wasn't my fault, but basically he screwed up and she, she couldn't sue him obviously. Cause she was anyway. And so she sued us. So that was like the craziest thing to happen. And I really Ubica. wanted to quit then because I was so like, it was, it's just gutting, right? Yeah, um,
0: if you're the person, if you're the fall guy for something you had no control over and on wait, your very first project.
1: Yeah, and I had to like audit myself, which by the way, I'm terrible at math. Thankfully, I married an accountant who's now my CFO. <laughs> but um, so it was just terrible. I had to go through all of the records and find out. And then I found out I wasn't marking up 10%, which is what I was supposed to be. I was only marking up like 7% and she was accusing us of marking up. Anyway, it was terrible. So I think that mistake was, not understanding who else was on the team and vetting them properly and making certain that everybody is licensed and insured. And I think that's really important, even if you're not hiring the people, but that you're surrounded by a team that's vetted and professional. Otherwise, really, really bad things can happen. So I learned that very quickly and also to make sure you get someone. This took longer to learn, but an incredible finance person.
0: Yeah. Okay. Very good advice. Summer, what about you? What was some early misperceptions that you had, shall we say?
3: Well, let's see. I think the misperception or one of the hardest things when I was starting out was really building not only the team of like subcontractors and architects and builders and all of those people, drapery people, upholstery people, but also building our internal team. So Mm -hmm. that's been something that was probably the most challenging piece of the puzzle that maybe I didn't understand would be challenging because in my naivety, I thought, well, everybody wants to do this, right? Everybody wants to work with us, right? This is going mm-hmm. to be so much fun. Why um, wouldn't they? <laughs> why wouldn't they want to work? We have great projects. We're fun people. This is going to be amazing. And we have had really good employees over the years. But I think that is one of the most challenging things when you're starting your own business is actually the hiring process. And not only hiring people that are qualified for the job, but also people that you want to be with 24-7, people that you want to travel with, people that you want possibly in the early days share hotel rooms with, people that you want to go on this journey with. And I'm fortunate enough to still have four of those original people with me, one of them being my husband, thankfully, and another one being my cousin, and then two of my other original employees. That's but that—that that is like such a challenging piece of the puzzle that I think I miscalculated in the beginning how difficult that would be to set up the right team.
0: Right. And I think hiring is something that's always going to be hard, no matter how yes. established you are. But especially when you're new and people yes. don't know you, don't <laughs> know your work, to get people who, of the level that you want, is going to be really, really difficult. So, like, right. what about you? What was one of your, your big problems or mistakes that you made early on?
2: Partnership. I should not have ever oh. gone into partnership with oh, anyone. Oh, that's another that's, interesting. That's my thing. big. That that's my big early failure, and I'm I'm big into failures. I fail all the time. <laughs> as long as you're I, failing upwards, I'm, it's I'm fine. failing upwards. Don't worry about it. But so what, one of the things that I recognized was that the value systems of two partners coming together have to be completely in sync, and everyone has to know what their role is. And I think we were so young. I don't blame it on her. And I don't blame myself now after years of of meditation. (laughs) I I really, (laughs) I assign it to just being young and naive and everyone after in it for themselves and not really trying to align as a partnership. So that's what I would say. And when you're starting out, you
0: don't necessarily, say, necessarily articulate your vision of the company. You assume that- Exactly.
2: Especially at 27, you'd make a lot of assumptions at 27 that I do not make now. Yeah, Exactly. I'm not surprised.
3: I actually- well, I learned that lesson laden from one of my bosses. She said, whatever you do, do not go into a partnership. So <laughs> that was something, and you know, it's something that's come up over the years and I'm glad I haven't. I understand. I feel your pain.
2: <laughs> well, one of the things, if I can just add this to this part of the conversation, is that we don't know our capacity. So for me, as a creative and the one who can draw and and all of that stuff, those things, the creative aspect, I just thought, oh, I, I'll just kind of hand over this other stuff, the administration, the business. The boring stuff. <laughs> to someone else. And the fact is, is that I remember my brother telling me, who was, uh, before he passed, was a sergeant in the army. He was like, you'd never do that. But I just was naive. And I've come to learn that our creativity is is not uh, mutually exclusive from our business acumen. Yeah. If only you could ignore, right?
3: If only I could only (laughs) only be creative 24 hours a day, but no,
0: exactly, it doesn't work out that way.
3: Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish.
1: If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit cherish.com. That's dot com. And now back to the show.
0: And I'm going to start with you, Summer, just to give Zoe a break. <laughs> we were talking about early clients. Now, Every designer I know that I've ever spoken with has told me, you know, you get clients who are wonderful and you get clients who are, shall we say, not so wonderful. I've never but had I think that especially,
2: experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure.
0: No. <laughs> um, but especially at the beginning when it's very hard to say no to any client when yes. you're getting... so. Was that ever an issue? Clearly, was for Zoe because she got sued by this <laughs> her first client. Yeah, so,
1: like sued for a second until I wrote yeah. a, until my attorney my yeah wrote right. a letter back and that was right. It was over, right? But so there are clear. crazy there there <laughs> yeah. are
0: crazy clients out there. It's yes, my, that's why I brought it up because yes. there are definitely difficult and crazy clients out there. So was that ever an issue for you starting out? I mean. How do you know when you can afford to say no? Is what I guess. <laughs> I I'm think asking. every
3: designer remembers firing their first client. I remember it. I'm trying to think how many years into it w- it was. But you're right at the beginning, and especially how I started out, where I didn't have a very large portfolio. I didn't turn down a lot of work. I said yes to most everything, and fortunately, that's not where we're at today. But I do remember the time when I just had said enough was enough and i would have a meeting with this man almost every week and almost every week after the meeting i left crying and so at some point i was like this i cannot con- i cannot continue right. to do this but for me it really was the fact that no matter how many avenues i tried we couldn't get our visions to align so I always pride myself on being able to work with a lot of different personalities as long as we can get our visions to align, which I have had a lot of success with in the past. But I've had one or two clients where that just wasn't the case. And that was kind of the final straw where I decided, well, if I'm not even going to love the way this turns out, what am I doing this for?
0: Yeah. Why are you crying every week? Why am I crying don't need to- every week? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You don't need to do that. <laughs> So, Leighton, what about you? Did you have any difficult clients at the beginning?
2: all the time. No, no, no. I have difficult times all the time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I still to this, day, well, only because I've, again, I'm going to go back to values is in understanding, like today I had an experience where after tons of computer generated drawings and hand sketches, the client's like, oh, now that it's installed, I get it. And it's like, listen, that is, a, that's late.
3: <laughs> you know."
2: And so, and he's getting excited about a process that he can't afford anymore in a lot of ways, Because of time and money that has gone into certain things being executed. So dealing with difficult clients is an ongoing practice for me I have to admit my creativity leads me to a very short fuse emotionally and mm-hmm. it's kind of like I don't know if every client is difficult I'm a diff. I, I could maybe I'm a difficult person I'm not sure sometimes <laughs> you know if you're not listening to everything I say does that make you difficult and that's exactly what a perfect client does obeys right so <laughs> um, so along those lines as I grow up, in a lot of ways mature, I ask myself, where's the gap between what I am looking to achieve and what the client understands that they want? And sometimes I have to sit back a bit in this process and not be as aggressive as I was and so egotistical, narcissistic as I was when I was younger and go, wait a minute, they really can't. I remember for this this poor old lady. I'm sure she's passed now. Putting for eighty year old client that was one of those clients that I didn't say no to, and I, I put the bookshelves at way too high. She could not reach those bookshelves, mm-hmm. you know. And now that I'm aging, I'm like, of course, that's too high. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, you know. And so it's those kinds of small things that I used to feel be very argumentative about. However, I can now see the other side of it. Yeah, it, that's a small little example. Right. And are
0: there things that you've learned over the years like looking back you think i wish i'd known this like even how to suss out whether a client's going to be successful or not layden has that if you, you has a um, skill that you've developed over the years
2: yes I, I think it's the way actually people read your contract interpret your contract, I can actually start to see light bulbs start to flicker and the right questions asked because we have a 13 page contract. It's been developed over many years and it's it's heavy handed for a lot of people. So when I have a client that's not afraid to read that contract and to ask really great questions about it, then I know we're on the same page. Like We're going to have a, a transparent, easy, at least if I don't love doing the administration, at least administratively, this person's connecting with me and, and we're on the same page. Right. And Summer, I assume now you have
0: a contract. Did you have a contract <laughs> right from the beginning? I did. When you started out? Yes. Okay. So, so. You, had, you had a good, pretty good business background then in that sense yes. of that. You, you yeah. from your own experience in business world. What about you, Zoe?
1: So I've had like 75 contracts, but.
0: <laughs> okay. Now, it's an ongoing process. Okay. Yeah, I would
1: like barter with my Harvard educated client to rewrite the contract. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's interesting because I had that interesting experience you mentioned in the beginning. I think it really helped because so my earlier career when I was working with Alexa, the clients were, um, I, well, I wasn't at Alexis caliber. She had a great experience with them. I had sometimes a less of a great experience with them. They were yes, more difficult. Yeah, I was.
0: As we know, some people will kiss up and kick down. And we've all dealt with that
1: mentioning no names yes uh, and so I think that that really that that and the experience that I had earlier in my own career led me to I just want to work with cool people who are really nice and I don't want to be involved in any of that so we become actually incredibly close with our clients here almost strangely close like giving wedding speeches <laughs> and that sort of thing but it's actually really helped and you mentioned the contract so I have had a million contracts the contract we have now we recently, I know we're talking about the early days. In the early days, like I said, it was all over the place and I didn't really know how to structure my contract and I did it a bunch of different ways. But recently something that's been helpful that maybe people can take away is we now set up calls with people, like after we send them the proposal, to actually talk through it so that they have a complete understanding and we have it of how we work. And that has really helped. That people seem, we seem to have less problems with it. Zoe, mm-hmm. that is
2: the, I think that is so important what you've said. We've adopted that practice mm-hmm. because the assumptions that people understand what we do is just is the beginning <laughs> of a rocky relationship.
3: Yeah. yeah. And I think and they I feel think more comfortable a- too. Sorry, Someret. Yes. Oh, no. I I, th- I always think it's a bad sign if a client just signs the contract without reading it. That means that they don't actually respect the contract. So I'm always open when clients have questions about the contract. I think that's a good sign, means that they're taking it more seriously.
0: Yeah. If they don't respect the contract, they're probably not going to respect the process. Right. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's something you know, how committed somebody is and how much they care. And if they don't care about the design of their home, then they're not a person you want to spend time with.
3: Right, exactly. So I'd love
0: to get a sense of now, clearly, since you guys got started in 2007, 2009, all that, a lot of things have changed in terms of how a designer gets known, like how you get clients, how you get, you know, Instagram has revolutionized everything. So what would be your advice to somebody who is starting out now? Like, let's say, Maybe one of your own employees, or maybe you don't want to think about your employees leaving, but uh, somebody, a young at another firm who's coming to you, what would be your best advice to that designer? Like, why don't we start with you?
2: Hmm, I'd answer that in a couple of different ways. I think over the last two years, and I definitely attribute it to Black Lives Matter, I have 100% 100% benefited from a global consciousness focused on, on blackness. There's no mm-hmm. question. I literally quadrupled within the last year and a half. So I feel blessed about that, but there's, it comes with a little bit of grief. So that's separate. That's there for mm-hmm. another conversation. Mm-hmm. That's the, a very complex and very interesting complex. subject, so, yes. But what I will say is be authentic. Tell, I, I mean, everyone's saying this, tell your story. But in social media, the last thing you want to do is start off in a place where you can't hold out, is an expression, which is make sure that you're producing imagery that is yours, that you feel like you can claim that it has ownership. You have ownership on that image, even though you, it might be a repurposed image, which we don't do at our at our firm, and talk be out there. I think it is a lot of noise right now on Instagram and social media. So how do you cut through almost like a hot butter knife through all that noise to be seen? And also then on the other spiritual side of it, don't make being seen the only thing that's <laughs> going to make you happy because being seen is just a like. You know, it's not really who you are as an individual. And that's what I would say. Balance that, like that advertising need to get to reach as much readership with the fact that your readership is not your value. Right.
3: Yeah. And I think you make a good point, Layden. that being seen is not just the only goal. I think people now with everybody being so focused on Instagram are losing the side of doing work is actually the goal, (laughs) doing the good work. So you have to be really focused in the beginning, I think on building that portfolio so that you have something for people to see. And it bothers me to no end when people are constantly posting everybody else's work and making it look as though it's their own. We are very specific about posting our own work on our page. And I think, you know, but I've had the benefit of 15 years of work now. So that
0: when you're starting out, you don't have that. That's another question. Exactly. So you you have
3: to make the work that you have look like more work in the beginning, Mm -hmm. but you need to also (laughs) focus on doing the work.
0: You can be deceptive about how much work you've done, but yes. you can't be deceptive about whose work it is. Exactly. It has to be yours, <laughs> right? No, not, but, I think you make
2: a, but I think you make a good point. When you're starting off, you shouldn't be trying to get Alexa Hampton prices and or charging right. at that scale, right? So right. when you're starting off, you could be, in theory, a deal. You could be, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. This you younger, more ambitious person who wants yeah. to make a mark. Absolutely. So in a lot of ways, don't misrepresent how many clients you have, but just make sure that, I would say, make sure that you're representing how much intention you have as a craftsman and a designer and a thinker. And how do you get portray that passion that Zoe mentioned before? Right. Right. And so what would your advice be?
1: I think if you're just starting out for me personally, I think one of the things that put me on the map in DC when I moved here was I did a design house here Mm -hmm. and I had no money and very little support and the whole thing, but I knew this was an opportunity for me to make a name for myself in DC. And so I decided, okay, I don't have a lot of clients anyway. And so I'm going to put my whole heart into this experience and just make sure that And also, I felt that this is my opportunity to showcase who I was because the work I was getting wasn't necessarily as good as the work that I'm getting now. And so I didn't feel that it was properly showcasing what I could actually do. Exactly. And so this felt like, okay, I can't necessarily get my one bedroom rental published, but (laughs) I can get this design house. So I think that saying yes to opportunities, even when they're scary, and I dialed in every favor. I promise people, like I will <laughs> die with you if you just do this for free. And and I, I'm very loyal. When I tell people I'll do things, I do. But I, they had to take a chance on me. I was very new to DC, so I was like, I'm like the mafia. I promise, if you do me this favor, I'm gonna totally make sure I give you so much business when I have it.
0: You're my um, family now. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so that really helped. And yeah, so I think saying yes to opportunities you're scared of and doing things that scare you a bit are important. I think if that is. Isn't your personality type, then being an entrepreneur may not be for you because it, it really mm-hmm. involves a lot of risk taking and not necessarily knowing the outcome when you take the leap, but right. just sort of rolling with it and not being attached to outcomes and kind of like seeing how it goes.
0: Right. Good advice. Because as I said before, running a design firm is a business. It's yeah. a creative business, but it's a business. And Layden, you were saying that doing the Kips Bay show, I mean, it was a great honor, but I'm sure... It was an opportunity to be seen by a whole different audience. Yes.
2: It costs money and a lot of effort. way too much money. <laughs> yeah. But um yeah, but in a show house that had Dakota Jackson, Alexa Hampton, Thomas O'Brien, Eric Kohler, we got the lion's share of, of advertising in the New York Times at that time. There was no social media in mm-hmm. 1999. Mm-hmm. So to stand up next to, to those guys and know that we had, that we were supposed to be there and we represented design, it was amazing yeah yeah and summer
0: what about you because you know like i think a young designer now they can start their instagram feed and even with the little work that they have they make a website because i think probably would you all agree that websites are still important in terms of business to have a website i think so
3: i think so but i i find myself going to people's instagram page before websites now but i do still think you should have a website yeah for your older yeah. clients.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you for that.
3: <laughs> Not you.
0: <laughs> but what would you advise somebody who is about to go out on their own or really thinking about it? I mean, I think it's a very good, what what Leighton and I were saying about being, you have to be an entrepreneur, you have to be, take those risks. But is there anything else that you would want to add for that that you've learned from your own experience?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the number one Tip I have if you're going to start your own business is be willing to give up your entire life for five years, probably at least, Mm -hmm. and then you can slowly start to build it back. But I think that's one of the things that I learned and doing it in my 20s, I gave up a significant portion of my 20s in order to build the business. It was all I was focused on and really had 100% laser focus. And I think that's why we were one of the reasons why it was able to grow and build as quickly as it did. So yeah, being being willing to to give up your nights and your weekends. I vividly remember a time when my husband and I were painting our first office and it was St. Patrick's Day weekend and everyone else our age was already drunk by 12 o'clock and we were in there just painting away and having the worst time ever so <laughs> I knew at that time that he was gonna stick with me for a long time since he was he was committed to this process but yeah I think being willing to like put in the hard work and not saying that you can't ever get your life back but being willing to to do what it takes in those first couple of years it, it's harder than it appears perhaps
0: yeah yeah, it's all-consuming. Yes. <laughs> and here's a question that maybe you haven't encountered this, but have any of you had a team member, a staff member, that you realized was at the point that it was actually time for that person to go out on their own? That your advice to them is, we've been working together for X number of years. I think you've learned everything I have to teach you. Now it's time for you to go out on your own. Has that ever happened? How do how do you know when that happens and or maybe it hasn't happened to you guys?
1: I have that experience with an existing employee right now who I think is like so incredibly talented and we have this kind we openly and has been with me since I'm trying not to okay since an intern. Wow. But finally <laughs> I think that by talking a lot with them and moving them around to where maybe make certain that it feels constantly different and engages Mm -hmm. their strengths and trying to make it inspiring. And as as though they're building something also for themselves. I mean, that's one of the things I like try to do here is to, um, and, and continue and are, and trying to do even more in the future, which Mm -hmm. is to allow people to brand within our company than just for me to get all of the credit. Mm -hmm. So to think of it as more of an ensemble cast where people don't necessarily have to leave in order to thrive, because I I understand the desire to leave. I mean, one of my probably best features and worst is like empathy. And so I do have this feeling, I, I feel like they're, I don't want to clip anyone's wings and make them stay with me forever and not to feel that they can have the same experience as I have. But of course, I also want to, have the people stay forever who are wonderful and make me happy and do great work and all the things. So I think trying to find out, is there a way that we can restructure things to get you excited and keep you here and make you feel that you can learn more and don't have to leave? I think that is very possible, but it can, it's about getting pretty creative about how you look at things and being pretty fluid with people's trajectories.
0: Boy, I think I want to come work for you, Zoe. Really? you like a great boss. Oh, my God. We are
1: hiring.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you're
2: only hiring
1: talented
0: people. So that's that, that oh, up.
1: So you won't do. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah right. I won't do.
2: What about you, Layden? Oh, my goodness. I picked the two people that are closest to me who are really running my office. I handpicked them from teaching them. And they're both Uh master's degree students I teach uh, that I've taught at New York School of Interior Design. The thought of them not being in my orbit is not very comfortable for me. So I'm working on that, Michael. I'm I'm (laughs) actually working. I have had other people who have worked for me. And it's been very, very sad when they... Unfortunately, I haven't had those conversations... And I don't, I hope I didn't set it up that way that in order to communicate. That we're open to discussion, but certain people, I think, we create such family dynamics here. Is that it's just mm-hmm. like I've got to leave, and and I'm leaving because they've made a decision, and they'll kind of before I know it, it's happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, you can't always plan out and help right. them. Sometimes it's just like a brand, like or something happens, they're moving, or they got
2: offered a job. You have to be accept that. I mean, yeah. And over the last two years during the pandemic, it, people came and went, and, yeah. and we didn't kind of know where we were, where yeah. where the office was. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, that complicated everything. That complicated oh a whole God. bunch of
0: stuff. Right, so, right, right. I hope and I Summer, answered the question. Summer, <laughs> what about you with your team? Have well, you ever had that somebody come to you and say, "I want to go"?
3: Yeah, I have had. I actually had two people that started their own business together. That worked. They both worked for me at the same time, and. And it was quite a few years ago at this point, but we still chat a lot and we send them business occasionally and things like that. So I know I know them and I know they're good designers and I know that people will be in good hands with them. So in some ways it is nice to build some sort of referral base out. But I mean, like everyone, the people that are really good, you want to keep them with you, right? Like Zoe right. was saying, you want to keep them growing with you and you'll do anything you can to keep them. I mean, my cousin, who is also my first employee, during COVID moved to St. Louis. And at first, she knows how I feel about remote work. So she was like, oh, well, I guess this is the end. And I'm, no, this cannot possibly be the end. We'll figure this out. We'll make this work. I hate so, remote work, but for you, <laughs> but for right? You, for, exactly. Right. That's how it was. And we're two years into it and it's still working. And yeah, I mean, I, I think for us, it is that kind of family dynamic as well. And I grow really close to people. So it is hard when somebody leaves the nest, so to speak. And we have had a few return. So that's always encouraging as well.
0: That's that's a real compliment to have somebody yeah. return.
3: Yes, yeah, so it also, feels like a win that day. Yeah. <laughs> and I,
0: I, I think that people go out on their own, but not as you were saying, Zoe, not everyone's got the temperament to run their own business and to deal right. with all the aspects of that. And I don't think there's anything negative about somebody deciding, you know what, I preferred working for Alexa Hampton than running my own business or whatever and going back. And I think that that's something that talk about being authentic to who you are. If that's who you are, that's wonderful. And Alexa, you guys would all be happy to have that person back if they're in the right role and they're that talented. Because going out on your own, it's a scary thing. And, you know, I, I so appreciate you guys sharing some of your experiences and your memories maybe some of them weren't such positive memories (laughs) (laughs) of your early years because I think it's so helpful for people to see you guys are so successful and are so prominent but it wasn't always the case and that's something I think is valuable for designers to remember.
1: I mean I also think when you're considering going out on your own there's different degrees by which you may want to grow a business like My version of world domination is not everyone's (laughs) vision, right? Some people just want to have a really healthy business. Some people want a really balanced life. I think that if you do interior design, what's interesting about this field is you can keep it small and feel really satisfied and do, you know, work depending on what your needs are. And it can be for women, very flexible. We're very focused here on, since it's such a female dominated business and I'm a mother of young children, how can we build something that's sustainable for women and make this a really positive environment for women in this industry. And I think that for people who maybe are thinking of going on on their own, this is a good field and it doesn't have to be scary. You don't have to make a million mistakes. You can take like one or two great clients and have a really balanced life and that may be what makes you really happy. So I think it's also defining what you want out of your business and how right. big you want to be.
0: I think that's a very important point. And I appreciate you bringing that up. So because not everyone wants to be Alexa Hampton or right. An AD100 designer, there's lots of very talented people working in small cities across the country, as I have learned. And there's amazing talent out there, but it's what they're comfortable with, the kind of work they want to do, the family life that they lead, all those factors. Some people want to open a shop as well as doing some design work or whatever. One of the great things about our industry is how many ways into it there are and how many levels you can work at and still be creative and find fulfillment.
1: And you have typically a lot of support with the architects and the mm-hmm. GCs. So it's mm-hmm. an, it, typically you're not the only person on the job either,
0: right. which is right. really nice. Right. It's a collaborative thing, which is one of the great pleasures of design. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Definitely. I would.
2: Al- I would also say that from a business, I remember my one of the first my first client. He said, "Make sure that you have six months worth of prudent reserve." Right. So make sure that you, if not dime comes into your office, you can run your office for six to nine months a year. Many people have different, whatever that means, whatever that might mean for comfort level. And I don't know how how large, the size of the staff and so on. One of the things that I learned there is be patient because that show house that you did in September does not mean a job in October. <laughs> right. <laughs> And if, and if that is your gauge, that's going to lead to a lot of unhappiness. So I would, I would just say sometimes you shine over, he- you polish here and it shines there.
3: Yeah, the only thing, one of the things that I would add for people looking to start their own business is really step back and think about what what your brand would be, what your design aesthetic is, and how you want to position yourself in the market. And sometimes that's something that kind of develops over the years. But I remember being very... Feeling very out of place, at least within the Chicago market, for the style of work that I was creating, and I think initially thinking that that was a bad thing, and then realizing now that that is really what set me apart from everybody else. Chicago is definitely a more modern city; it's a more neutral city, and then I was coming in with all of these crazy, colorful, traditional designs, and and thinking like, well, I'm sure out of place here. I mean, I I'd flip through the Chicago magazines, and it was like they all kind of went together and then boom, there was mine. And it was, it was so much different. And I think when I was younger thinking that that was maybe something that made me think I should move to a different market, but now realizing that that was something that really made me stand out in this market. I think being confident in what you want to put out there and what you want to say with your work is really important from an early age.
0: I think that's brilliant because it's really, what are you offering to the world? If you're going out into the world, what are you offering that's not already on the market that that people can't already get? You have to be, again, being authentic, being who you are and developing who you are. Exactly. Where none of us are born full-blown from the head of Zeus, you know? <laughs> uh, we all learn. Well, maybe and Zoe is. <laughs> just, no, she was sued right away, so there kidding. you go.
2: <laughs> no, but Zoe, you got that out of the way early. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It, that, 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 yeah, that's Agony. amazing. That was
0: great. I mean, that it's was been so
1: smooth since then, guys. Like yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> no <laughs> problems,
0: right? <laughs> that was the only one. Anyway, I can't thank you guys enough. I, this has been so enlightening and informative, and I know... The people are really going to appreciate it. So I I really want to thank my wonderful guests, Leighton Lewis, Zoe Feldman, and Summer Thornton. And I want to thank everyone for listening to The Cherish Podcast. You've been listening to The Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.